The word of God from Matthew 27:62 through 28:20. Jesus is risen from the dead. The next day, which followed the preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, "Sir, we remember that while this deceiver was still alive, he said, after 3 days I will rise again. So give orders that the tomb be made secure until the third day." Otherwise, his disciples may come, steal him, and tell the people, he is risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Take guards, Pilate told them. Go and make it as secure as you know how. And they went and secured the tomb by setting a seal on the stone and placing the guards. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. There was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards were so shaken by fear of him that they became like dead men. The angel told the women, do not be afraid because I know you are looking for Jesus who is crucified, who was crucified. He is not here. For he has risen just as he said, come and see the place where he lay. Then go and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and indeed is going ahead of you to Galilee, and you will see him there. Listen, I have told you. So departing quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, they ran to tell his disciples the news, and then Jesus met them and said, greetings. They came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And Jesus told them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to leave Galilee, and they will see me there. As they were on their way, some of the guards came into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. After the priests had assembled with the elders and agreed on a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money and told them, Say this, his disciples came during the night and stole him while he was sleeping. If this reaches the governor's ears, he will deal with him and keep you out of trouble. They took the money and did as they were instructed, and this story has been spread among Jewish people to this day. The eleven disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. The word of God for the people of God. I think I'm on now. There we go. Turn to the book of Isaiah, if you would. Isaiah chapter 25. You can find that on page 620 in the Bible underneath the seat in front of you. My guess is that as Rachel read 
those words for us just now from the book of Matthew that you didn't see she was actually drawing a line in the sand as she was reading. Either what Rachel just read for us is true or it isn't. The resurrection story puts everything on the line. It makes Christianity unignorable. Either the resurrection story is one of the most widespread, brilliant, and insidious cons in the history of mankind, a con that has managed to deceive 2.6 billion people on the planet right now who claim to follow Jesus, or Jesus Christ really is the Son of God who really died and who really is alive. And so, who demands your love, your worship, and your loyalty? There is no middle ground. Unlike one of the gospel accounts of the resurrection, Isaiah 25 is a prophecy of the resurrection. It sets the resurrection in a context, and then it places the resurrection at the center, and then it gives us a call. It gives you a call, a call to the reader. So first, would you look at me with the context of Isaiah 25? In the book of Isaiah, we find the God of Israel making this claim, all is not as it seems. All that appears to be solid is in reality highly unstable, highly volatile. And what appears to be fragile from a human perspective, is actually solid and sound. And he uses a metaphor to describe this volatile, all-is-not-as-it-seems reality. He tells us a tale of two cities. Now, some of you just had your heart start beating faster and you inwardly groaned, remembering back to literature class because you recognize that phrase is the title of a book, and some of you are like, that's a book? Yes, it is the title of a book, but don't worry, we're not going to do some literature analysis on it this morning. But Isaiah tells us about two cities. The first city makes an appearance back in chapter 24, verse 10. We're going to be in chapter 25 here in a few minutes, but look back at 24:10. The city of chaos is shattered. Every house is closed to entry. In the streets they cry for wine. All joy grows dark. Earth's rejoicing goes into exile. Only desolation remains in the city. Its gate has collapsed in ruins. What's the name of this first city? It's called the city of chaos. We could call it the meaningless city. The word translated chaos first appears in Genesis 1, chapter 2, where the earth is described as formless. Same word. Alec Motier is one of my favorite authors. He passed away in 2016 at the age of 91. He spent three decades studying the book of Isaiah. Listen to how he describes this meaningless city. See if it rings any bell with 
rings any bells with the culture we live in. The meaningless city lives without the ordering, life-giving hand of God, opting for a life on its own, within itself, depending on itself. Consequently, it is unstable and without purpose, spinning on the wheel but having dismissed the potter. It's ever-changing shapes and fashions not dictated by purpose, but by whimsy. Everything is relative and highly individualistic. Humankind's great world city is the city without meaning, where they thought they could find on earth and in themselves all they needed for secure community and a future. And they found only disorder, division, and meaningless. It is, he says, a city a world with structured without reference to God. And it seems at first glance like a great city in which to build a home. After all, you can reach your maximum human potential in a city like this, right? You have the freedom to inexhaustibly express yourself alongside of everyone else who is inexhaustibly expressing themselves. Ray Ortland is was a pastor for many years in Nashville, and he comments, our world is a massive social construct, often beautiful and even heroic, rendering plausible life without God at the center. We see the meaninglessness and the purposelessness and the inherent inconsistencies of this great city when, the, when we hear the cultural creeds of sexual freedom at any cost, including the cost of slavery to sexual addiction. When we hear creeds like, my body, my choice, when another human body is involved. When we hear creeds like, self-fulfillment is your highest ethical ideal. But remember, all is not as it seems. Remember how else Isaiah describes the city? He said back in 2510, every house within the city is closed to entry. Every house is barred. Why? Because it's a dangerous city to live in. If life is dictated by whimsy and not wisdom, if life is meant to be highly individualistic, then ultimately the result can't be anything but disorder and division and insecurity. And if you choose to make your home in this city, you better get bars on the windows, a really good security system, and a ring doorbell, metaphorically speaking. the meaningless city. But there's a second city, and it's found in the verses following our main text. Look at chapter 26, verse 1. On that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. Salvation is established as walls and ramparts Open the gates so a righteous nation can come in, one that remains faithful. The strong city. 
Isaiah describes this city as having an inherent strength. The nation coming to it does not bring strength to it. No, the city itself is strong. Its prosperity doesn't rise or fall with the economy or the stock market or who's been elected. Its strength isn't dependent on what world powers are in treaty with one another or at war with one another. The city is not dependent on whether or not its banking system has enough assets to cover its depositors. The strong city is a city built and founded by God, and it's simply waiting for inhabitants. All the inhabitants need to do is walk through the open gates. The prosperity, the peace, the security found within the strength of this city are yours for your enjoyment if you will just enter. Its residents respond by simply, well, enjoying. Walking through the gates. Living. We're told that Abraham, the great Old Testament patriarch, was looking for just such a city, a city with firm foundations whose builder and architect is God. Hebrews 11.10 tells us that. We're told in Isaiah 24.14 that the people who inhabit this city raise their voice. They shout aloud over the majesty of Yahweh. They scream with excitement. Have you ever been so absolutely delighted and surprised by something that you screamed with joy and exhilaration? Maybe you were surprised by a visit from a family member. Or maybe you went on your first roller coaster ride. Or maybe, like many of us in this room, you were just watching Tennessee beat Alabama on a field goal kick as time expired. Exhilaration. I grew up in New Hampshire. There were many summer nights that my family would be sung to sleep by a particular bird called the common loon or the northern diver. Its song is hauntingly beautiful, yet comforting. Several years ago, Elizabeth and I went back to New Hampshire for a visit and We rented a canoe and were paddling in the north woods near the Canadian border. And for about 45 minutes, we had a loon as a companion within just a few feet of our canoe. It was magical. But loons are northern birds. They like cold weather. So you can imagine our surprise when last week, Elizabeth and I are walking along the Tennessee River on the riverfront, and we see and hear a loon. It's right in front of us, diving, having a great time. And when we heard it give its cry, well, we almost cried with delight. It was so surprising, so exhilarating, so unexpected, so profoundly beautiful. That exhilaration, that delight, any exhilaration, any delight that 
we might experience on earth today pales in comparison to the delight of those who make their home in the strong city. They scream with excitement. So let me ask you, which of these cities would you want to live in? I'm not asking you which city you are actually living in. I'm asking you which city would you like to live in? The meaningless city that's spinning out of control with no one at the wheel, built on whimsy, unstable, purposeless, Perhaps that sounds appealing to some, but all is not as it seems in the meaningless city. Look at chapter 24, verse 7. The new wine mourns, the vine withers, all the carousers now groan, the joyful tambourines have ceased, the noise of the jubilant has stopped, the joyful lyre has ceased, they no longer sing and drink wine, beer is bitter to those who drink it, the city of chaos is shattered." Every house is closed to entry. In the streets they cry for wine. All joy grows dark. Earth's rejoicing goes into exile. Only desolation remains in the city. Its gates has collapsed in ruins. Look at chapter 25, verse 2. For you, God, have turned the city into a pile of rocks, a fortified city, you have turned it into ruins. It will never be rebuilt. You see, this meaningless city is a system built without reference to God, where in Motir's words, nothing adds up, and where everything under judgment comes crashing down. So friend, let me ask you, is this the city you want to live in? Or do you want to live in the strong city, the city that exists in perfection apart from your self-effort to build it or perfect it, a city whose strength is inherent and independent of any of its creaturely residents, a city whose builder and architect is God himself? And make no mistake, you're going to live in one of these cities. Ray Ortland says this, we all need a home, a place of our own, a refuge, a community, a loyalty. We don't like being wanderers. We long to be owners. And the city of God is the only address that will last for ever. Our longings are that lar large. They are eternal. And God's offer is nothing less than that. So what's the context? Well, it's a tale of two cities, the meaningless city and the strong city. But now let's get to the center. At the center of our text is a feast, a foe, and a final outcome. Look at the feast. 
verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of armies will prepare for all the peoples a feast of choice meat, a feast with aged wine, prime cuts of meat, fine vintage wine. The feast involves a place on this mountain. He's referring to Mount Zion, another name for Jerusalem. The feast involves people, specifically all the peoples, any who will come. The feast involves provision, food without equal, choice meats, prime cuts, aged and vintage wine. If you asked any two guys in this room who serves the best hamburger in Chattanooga, you might get a handful of answers. Undoubtedly, Tremont Tavern and Main Street Meats would be on that list. Case in point. But there's no question where the best food is in Isaiah 25. It's at this feast. The feast involves a provider. Who sets the table? The Lord of armies. God himself, the creator and sustainer God of the Bible, the God of the strong city, is giving this feast. And the feast has a purpose. It's a victory banquet, a banquet to celebrate the triumph of God over the ultimate foe of his people. But who is the foe? And how is the victory secured? Well, look at verse 7. On this mountain, there's a repetition. On this mountain, there's a feast. Well, on this mountain, he will swallow up the shroud that is over all the peoples, the woven covering that is over all the nations. He will swallow up death permanently. The Lord God will swallow up death. You see, the Lord God is not only the feast giver, but he's the death swallower. Isaiah is using imagery that would have been well known to his audience. You see, there was a God known as Mot, M-O-T. He was the Canaanite God of the underworld of death, and he was described as a monster with a voracious appetite, could not be satisfied, always hungry, always eating. But the death monster Mot has met his doom in the Lord God Yahweh of Israel. The monster who swallows all people will himself be swallowed up. The Lord God will swallow up death once and for all. And this death-swallowing God is also described as a tear wiper and a disgrace remover. Look at verse 8. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from all the earth Indeed, the Lord has announced it. Now, if you're human, then you know what it is to mourn. And if you're a follower of Jesus, then you know what it is to bear reproach for the name of Christ. Because surrendering your sexuality to Jesus brings you reproach in our cultural moment. Because surrendering your finances to Jesus means you will bear the reproach of cultural diminishment. 
Because surrendering your relationships to Jesus will, so that he defines the center of your life, will be misunderstood by others. You'll be maligned and spoken against. You'll be disgraced. That's why Jesus tells us to count the cost of following him. But throughout the Bible, we're told of men and women who counted that cost and who chose to live in the strong city, living life with reference to God. Men like Moses, who was willing to bear the reproach of Christ, remember, rather than to be called the son of the most powerful man in the known world. And men like Joseph, who refused sexual self-expression that would have given him intense cultural power. These followers of God wanted to live in the strong city, not the meaningless city. Hebrews 13, 13 encourages us to join Jesus outside the limits of acceptable society, bearing with him the shame and disgrace that he carried, forsaking what seems solid for what seems fragile, but all is not as it seems. And what is the end? God promises to remove the disgrace forever. But you may be thinking, Isaiah, how do we know this to be true? How do I know that the Lord God really does give a feast and will swallow up death and will wipe away tears and remove disgrace? Well, the end of that verse tells us, because the Lord has spoken. Because he said so. Because he's God. Because he cannot lie. The feast, the foe, what's the final outcome? Verse 9 and 10. At that time, they, by the way, if you're in Christ, that they means you. At that time, they will say, look, here is our God. We waited for him, and he delivered us. Here is the Lord. We waited for him. Let's rejoice and celebrate his deliverance. So what is the final outcome? Celebration, deliverance, delight, joy, salvation. As Motir says, the pure, hilarious joy of deliverance. That's the final outcome of any who will join the feast. Anyone who will receive the triumph of God over the foe of death in her place by entrusting her security to this death-swallowing God. For anyone who's willing to move from the meaningless city to the strong city by faith. So that brings us to the call. Where does that leave us 2,000 years later? Where does that bring us now? Well, it brings us to remember on a certain mountain where a certain man was buried in a certain tomb. 
and what happened on that Easter Sunday 2,000 years ago. In the words of one songwriter, his heart beats. His blood begins to flow, waking up what was dead a moment ago. And his heart beats. Now everything is changed because the blood that brought us peace with God is racing through his veins and his heart beats. He breathes in. His living lungs expand. The heavy air surrounding death turns to breath again and he breathes out. He is word and flesh once more. The Lamb of God slain for us is the lion ready to roar and his heart beats. He rises glorified in flesh, clothed in immortality, the firstborn from the dead. He rises and his work is already done. So he's resting as he rises to reclaim the bride he won. He took one breath and put death to death. So, where is your sting, O grave? How grave is your defeat? On this mountain, when our Lord was resurrected, our Lord God was swallowing up death for us. He was demonstrating the strength of his city, the fragility of society built without reference to God. He was setting the stage to wipe away the tears from our faces and to remove all our disgraces. Friends, Jesus, he is the feast-giving, tear-wiping, disgrace-removing, death-swallowing deliverer of Isaiah 25. And he is alive. So what's the call? Isaiah 26, verse 3. You will keep the mind that is dependent upon you in perfect peace, for it is trusting in you. Trust in the Lord forever, because in the Lord, the Lord himself is an everlasting rock. If you by faith will receive him for who he is, the son of God who rescues you from the purposelessness of life in the meaningless city, if you will receive him as one who rescues you from a life of futility and toil and sin and struggle and shame, who then moves you into his own strong city with firm foundations whose builder and maker is God, this Jesus will welcome you into his family. What do you have to do? Just walk through the gates. Come to the feast. No self-effort on your part. No self-salvation schemes will Jimmy open the door to the strong city. Simply entrust yourself to Jesus through repentant faith. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, if to you the resurrection story just seems like, I don't know, it should be an 
Mother Goose's fairy tales or the Brothers Grimm, an allegory of some sort? Then let me ask you this question. What if it's true? What if there really is a feast-giving, tear-wiping, disgrace-removing, death-swallowing deliverer? Wouldn't that change everything? Can you admit that there's something compelling about that sort of gracious, loving authority? And friend, let me ask you further, do you have the courage to doubt your doubts? And do you have the courage to join with us regularly as a church as we explore in community what this resurrected king has done, is doing, and will do? Join us. Here at Sojourn, without apology, we are just a few of the billions of people who believe that the tomb is empty. But you don't have to believe that to join with us weekly and explore the realities of Christianity. But we believe the tomb is empty, not metaphorically, not allegorically, but actually physically empty. That's why we exist as a church. We're not playing games here. This message is life-altering. It reshapes our priorities. It reforms our energies. It renews our minds. Jesus is alive. He is risen just as he said. And now, he is the feast-giving, tear-wiping, disgrace-removing, death-swallowing deliverer. So what's the end of the story? What do we find? Revelation 21. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and He will live with them. They will be His peoples, and God Himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then one of the angels came and spoke with John and said, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He then showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever. Then He said to me, these words are what? Faithful and true. So both the Spirit and the Bride say, come. Let anyone who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. 
Let the one who desires take the water of life freely. So friend, come to the strong city. Jesus invites you. And he is the feast-giving, tear-wiping, disgrace-removing, death-swallowing, resurrected deliverer. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for King Jesus. We thank you that he knows what it is to experience death. But we thank you that we have a high priest who is alive. who is touched with all the feelings of our infirmities, who is made like us in every respect yet without sin. Father, give us the faith to believe that you will do what you have said you will do, that you have done what you've said you've done, and that you will do through Jesus what you've said you will do. Give us faith to believe. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.